Section 1 of An Editor's Tales. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. An Editor's Tales by Anthony Trollope. The Turkish Bath. It was in the month of August. The world had gone to the Moors and the Rhine, but we were still kept in town by the exigencies of our position. We had been worked hard during the preceding year, and were not quite as well as our best friends might have wished us, and we resolved upon taking a Turkish bath. This little story records the experience of one individual man, but our readers, we hope, will, without a grudge, allow us the use of the editorial we. We doubt whether the story could be told at all in any other form. We resolved upon taking a Turkish bath, and at about three o'clock in the day we strutted from the outer to the inner room of the establishment in that light costume and with that air of Arab dignity which are peculiar to the place. As everybody has not taken a Turkish bath in German Street, we will give the shortest possible description of the position. We had entered, of course, in the usual way, leaving our hat and our boots and our valuables among the numerous respectable assistants who throng the approaches. And, as we had entered, we had observed a stout, middle-aged gentleman on the other side of the street, clad in vestments somewhat the worse for wear, and to our eyes particularly noticeable by reason of the tattered condition of his gloves. A well-to-do man may have no gloves, or may simply carry in his hands those which appertain to him rather as a thing of custom than for any use for which he requires them. But a tattered glove, worn on the hand, is to our eyes the surest sign of a futile attempt at outer respectability. It is melancholy to us beyond expression. Our brother editors, we do not doubt, are acquainted with the tattered glove, and have known the sadness which it produces. If there be an editor whose heart has not been softened by the feminine tattered glove, that editor is not our brother. In this instance the tattered glove was worn by a man, and though the usual indication of poor circumstances was conveyed, there was nevertheless something jaunty in the gentleman's step which preserved him from the desecration of pity. We barely saw him, but still were thinking of him as we passed into the building with the oriental letters on it, and took off our boots and pulled out our watch and purse. We were, of course, accommodated with two checked towels, and having in vain attempted to show that we were to the manner born, by fastening the larger of them satisfactorily round our own otherwise naked person, had obtained the assistance of one of those very skillful eastern boys who glide about the place and create envy by their familiarity with its mysteries. With an absence of all bashfulness, which soon grows upon one, we had divested ourselves of our ordinary trappings beneath the gaze of five or six young men lying on surrounding sofas, among whom we recognized young Walker of the Treasury, 
and hereby testify on his behalf that he looks almost as fine a fellow without his clothes as he does with them, and had strutted through the doorway into the bath-room, trailing our second towel behind us. Having observed the matter closely in the course of perhaps half a dozen visits, we are prepared to recommend that mode of entry to our young friends as being at the same time easy and oriental. There are those who wear the second towel as a shawl, thereby no doubt achieving a certain decency of garb. But this is done to the utter loss of all dignity, and a feminine appearance is produced, such as is sometimes that of a lady of fifty looking after her maid-servants at seven o'clock in the morning, and intending to dress again before breakfast. And some there are who carry it under the arm, simply as a towel. But these are they who, from English perversity, willfully rob the institution of that picturesque orientalism which should be its greatest charm. A few are able to wear the article as a turban, and that no doubt should be done by all who are competent to achieve the position. We have observed that men who can do so enter the bath-room with an air, and are received there with a respect which no other arrangement of the towel will produce. We have tried this, but as the turban gets over our eyes and then falls altogether off our brow, we have abandoned it. In regard to personal deportment, depending partly on the step, somewhat on the eye, but chiefly on the costume, it must be acknowledged that the attempt and not the deed confounds us. It is not every man who can carry a blue towel as a turban and look like an Arab in the streets of Cairo as he walks slowly down the room in German Street with his arms crossed on his naked breast. The attempt and not the deed does confound one shockingly. We therefore recommend that the second towel should be trailed. The effect is good, and there is no difficulty in the trailing which may not be overcome. We had trailed our way into the bathroom, and had slowly walked to one of those armchairs in which it is our custom on such occasions to seat ourselves, and to await sudation. There are marble couches, and if a man be able to lie on stone for half an hour without a movement beyond that of clapping his hands, or a sound beyond a hollow-voiced demand for water, the effect is not bad. But he loses everything if he tosses himself uneasily on his hard couch, and we acknowledge that our own elbows are always in the way of our own comfort, and that our bones become sore. We think that the marble sofas must be intended for the younger Turks. If a man can stretch himself on stone without suffering for the best part of an hour, or, more bravely perhaps, without appearing to suffer, let him remember that all is not done even then. Very much will depend on the manner in which he claps his hands, and the hollowness of the voice in which he calls for water. There should, we think, be two blows of the palms. One is very weak and produces its own futility. Even to dull London ears it seems at once to want the eastern tone. We have heard three given, effectively, but we think that it requires much practice, and even when it is perfect the result is that of western impatience rather than of eastern gravity. 
no word should be pronounced beyond that one word, water. The effect should be as though the whole mind were so devoted to the sudorific process as to admit of no extraneous idea. There should seem to be almost an agony in the effort, as though the man enduring it, conscious that with success he would come forth a god, was aware that being as yet but mortal he may perish in the attempt. Two claps of the hand and a call for water, and that repeated with an interval of ten minutes, are all the external signs of life that the young Turkish bather may allow to himself while he is stretched upon his marble couch. We had taken a chair, well aware that nothing godlike could be thus achieved, and contented to obtain the larger amount of human comfort. The chairs are placed two and two, and a custom has grown up, of which we scarcely think that the origin has been eastern, in accordance with which friends occupying these chairs will spend their time in conversation. The true devotee to the Turkish bath will, we think, never speak at all, but when the speaking is low in tone, just something between a whisper and an articulate sound, the slight murmuring hum produced is not disagreeable. We cannot quite make up our mind whether this use of the human voice be or be not oriental, but we think that it adds to the mystery, and upon the whole it gratifies. Let it be understood, however, that harsh, resonant, clearly expressed speech is damnable. The man who talks aloud to his friend about the trivial affairs of life is selfish, ignorant, unpoetical, and English in the very worst sense of the word. Who but an ass, proud of his own capacity for braying, would venture to dispel the illusions of a score of bathers by observing aloud that the house sat till three o'clock that morning? But though friends may talk in low voices, a man without a friend will hardly fall into conversation at the Turkish bath. It is said that our countrymen are unapt to speak to each other without introduction, and this inaptitude is certainly not decreased by the fact that two men meet each other with nothing on but a towel apiece. Finding yourself next to a man in such a garb, you hardly know where to begin and then there lies upon you the weight of that necessity of maintaining a certain dignity of deportment, which has undoubtedly grown upon you since you succeeded in freeing yourself from your socks and trousers. For ourselves we have to admit that the difficulty is much increased by the fact that we are short-sighted and are obligated by the sudorific processes and by the shampooing and washing that are to come to leave our spectacles behind us. The delicious wonder of the place is no doubt increased to us, but our incapability of discerning aught of those around us in that low, gloomy light is complete. Jones from Friday Street, or even Walker from the Treasury, is the same to us as one of those Asiatic slaves who administer to our comfort and flit about the place with admirable decorum and self-respect. On this occasion we had barely seated ourselves when another bather, with slow majestic step, came to the other chair, and with a manner admirably adapted to the place, stretching out his naked legs and throwing back his naked shoulders, seated himself beside us. 
we are much given to speculations on the characters and probable circumstances of those with whom we are brought in contact. Our editorial duties require that it should be so. How should we cater for the public did we not observe the public in all its moods? We thought that we could see at once that this was no ordinary man, and we may as well aver here at the beginning of our story that subsequent circumstances proved our first conceptions to be correct. The absolute features of the gentleman we did not, indeed, see plainly. The gloom of the place in our own deficiency of sight forbade it, but we could discern the thorough man of the world, the traveler who had seen many climes, the cosmopolitan to whom east and west were alike in every motion that he made. We confessed that we were anxious for conversation, and that we struggled within ourselves for an apt subject, thinking how we might begin. But the apt subject did not occur to us, and we should have passed that half-hour of repose in silence had not our companion been more ready than ourselves. "'Sir,' said he, turning round in his seat with a peculiar and captivating grace, I shall not, I hope, offend or transgress any rule of politeness by speaking to a stranger. There was ease and dignity in his manner, and at the same time some slight touch of humor which was very charming. I thought that I detected just a hint of an Irish accent in his tone, but if so, the dear brogue of his country, which is always delightful to me, had been so nearly banished by intercourse with other tongues as to leave the matter still a suspicion, a suspicion, or rather a hope. By no means, we answered, turning round on our left shoulder, but missing the grace with which he made his movement. There is nothing, said he, to my mind, so absurd as that two men should be seated together for an hour without venturing to open their mouths, because they do not know each other. And what does it make whether a man has his breeches on or is without them? My hope had now become an assurance. As he named the article of clothing which peculiarly denotes a man, he gave a picturesque emphasis to the word which was certainly Hibernian. Who does not know the dear sound? And as a chance companion for a few idle minutes, is there any one so likely to prove himself agreeable as a well-informed, travelled Irishman? And yet, said we, men do depend much on their outward paraphernalia. Indeed, and they do, said our friend. And why? Because they can trust their tailors when they can't trust themselves. Give me the man who can make a speech without any of the accessories of the pulpit who can preach what sermon there is in him without a pulpit. His words were energetic, but his voice was just suited to the place. Had he spoken aloud, so that others might have heard him, we should have left our chair and have retreated to one of the inner and hotter rooms at the moment. His words were perfectly audible, but he spoke in a fitting whisper. It is part of my creed, he continued, that we should never lose even a quarter of an hour. What a strange mass of human beings one finds in this city of London. A mighty maze, but not without a plan, we replied. Bedad, 
and it's hard enough to find the plan said he it struck me that after that he rose into a somewhat higher flight of speech as though he had remembered and was desirous of dropping his country it is the customary and perhaps the only fault of an irishman whether it be there or not we can expatiate freely as the poet says how unintelligible is london new york or constantinople one can understand or even paris one knows what the world is doing in these cities and what men desire what men desire is nearly the same in all cities we remarked and not without truth as we think is it money you mean he said again relapsing yes money no doubt is the grand desideratum the to prepon the to calon the to pan plato and pope were evidently at his fingers ends we did not conclude from this slight evidence that he was thoroughly imbued with the works either of the poet or the philosopher but we hold that for the ordinary purposes of conversation a superficial knowledge of many things goes further than an intimacy with one or two money continued he is everything no doubt rem 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 se posse recti sinon you know the rest i don't complain of that i like money myself i know its value i've had it and i'm not ashamed to say it sir i've been without it our sympathies are completely with you in reference to the latter position we said remembering with a humility which we hope is natural to us that we were not always editors what i complain of is said our new friend still whispering as he passed his hands over his arms and legs to learn whether the temperature of the room was producing its proper effect that if a man here in london have a diamond or a pair of boots or any special skill at his command he cannot take his article to the proper mart and obtain for it the proper price can he do that in constantinople we inquired much better and more accurately than he can in london and so he can in paris we did not believe this but as we were thinking after what fashion we would express our doubts he branched off so quickly to a matter of supply and demand with which we were specially interested that we lost the opportunity of arguing the general question a man of letters he said a capable and an instructed man of letters can always get a market for his wares in paris a capable and instructed man of letters will do so in london we said as soon as he has proved his claims he must prove them in paris before they can be allowed yes he must prove them by the by will you have a cheroot so saying he stretched out his hand and took from the marble slab beside him two cheroots which he had placed there he then proceeded to explain that he did not bring in his case because of the heat but that he was always muni that was his phrase with a couple in the hope that he might meet an acquaintance with whom to share them i accepted his offer and when we had walked round the chamber to a light provided for the purpose we reseated ourselves his manner of moving about the place was so good that i felt it to be a pity that he should ever have a rag on more than he wore at present 
His tobacco, I must own, did not appear to me to be of the first class, but then I am not in the habit of smoking cheroots, and am no judge of the merits of the weed as grown in the East. Yes, a man in Paris must prove his capability, but then how easily he can do it, if the fact be proved be there, and how certain is the mart, if he have the thing to sell. We immediately denied that in this respect there was any difference between the two capitals, pointing out what we believed to be a fact, that in one capital, as in the other, there exists, and must ever exist, extreme difficulty in proving the possession of an art so difficult to define as capability of writing for the press. Nothing but success can prove it, we said, as we slapped our thigh with an energy altogether unbecoming our position as a Turkish bather. A man may have a talent then, and he cannot use it till he have used it. He may possess a diamond and cannot sell it till he have sold it. What is a man to do who wishes to engage himself in any of the multifarious duties of the English press? How is he to begin? In New York I can tell such a one where to go at once. Let him show in conversation that he is an educated man, and they will give him a trial on the staff of any newspaper. They will let him run his venture for the pages of any magazine. He may write his fingers off here, and not an editor of them all will read a word that he writes. Here he touched us, and we were indignant. When he spoke of the magazines, we knew that he was wrong. With newspapers, we said, we imagine it to be impossible that contributions from the outside world should be looked at. But papers sent to magazines, at any rate, to some of them, are read. I believe, said he, that a little farce is kept up. They keep a boy to look at a line or two, and then return the manuscript. The pages are filled by the old stock writers, who are sure of the market, let them send what they will, padding mongers who work eight hours a day and hardly know what they write about. We again loudly expressed our opinion that he was wrong, and that there did exist magazines, the managers of which were sedulously anxious to obtain the assistance of what he called literary capacity, wherever they could find it. Sitting there at the Turkish bath, with nothing but a towel round us, we could not declare ourselves to a perfect stranger, and we think that, as a rule, editors should be impalpable. But we did express our opinion very strongly. "'And you believe,' said he, with something of scorn in his voice, that if a man who had been writing English for the press in other countries, in New York, say, or in Dublin, a man of undoubted capacity, mind you, were to make the attempt here in London, he would get a hearing? Certainly he would, said we. And would any editor see him, unless he came with an introduction from some special friend? We paused a moment before we answered this, because the question was to us one having a very special meaning. Let an editor do his duty with ever so pure a conscience. Let him spend all his days and half his nights reading manuscripts and holding the balance fairly between the public and those who wish to feed the public. Let his industry be never so unwearied and his impartiality never so unflinching. 
still he will if possible avoid the pain of personally repelling those to whom he is obliged to give an unfavorable answer but we at the turkish bath were quite unknown to the outer world and might hazard an opinion as any stranger might have done and we have seen very many such visitors as those to whom our friend alluded and may perhaps see many more yes said we an editor might or might not see such a gentleman but if pressed no doubt he would an english editor would be quite as likely to do so as a french editor this we declared with energy having felt ourselves to be ruffled by the assertion that these things are managed better in paris or in new york than in london then mr blank would you give me an interview if i call with a little manuscript which i have to-morrow morning said my irish friend addressing us with a beseeching tone and calling us by the very name by which we are known among our neighbors and tradesmen we felt that everything was changed between us and that the man had plunged a dagger into us yes he had plunged a dagger into us had we had our clothes on had we felt ourselves to possess at the moment our usual form of life we think that we could have rebuked him as it was we could only rise from our chair throw away the fag end of the filthy cheroot which he had given us and clap our hands half a dozen times for the asiatic to come and shampoo us but the irishman was at our elbow you will let me see you to-morrow he said my name is malloy michael malloy i have not a card about me because my things are outside there a card would do no good at all we said again clapping our hands for the shampooer i may call then said mr michael malloy certainly yes you can call if you please then having thus ungraciously acceded to the request made to us we sat down on the marble bench and submitted ourselves to the black attendant during the whole of the following operation while the man was pummeling our breast and poking our ribs and pinching our toes while he was washing us down afterwards and reducing us gradually from the warm water to the cold we were thinking of mr michael molloy and the manner in which he had entrapped us into a confidential conversation the scoundrel must have plotted it from the very first must have followed us into the bath and taken his seat beside us with a deliberately premeditated scheme he was too just the man whom we should not have chosen to see with a worthless magazine article in his hand we think that we can be efficacious by letter but we often feel ourselves to be weak when brought face to face with our enemies at that moment our anger was hot against mr molloy and yet we were conscious of a something of pride which tingled with our feelings it was clear to us that mr molloy was no ordinary person and it did in some degree gratify our feelings that such a one should have taken so much trouble to encounter us we had found him to be a well-informed pleasant gentleman and the fact that he was called molloy and desired to write for the magazine over which we presided could not really be taken as detracting from his merits there had doubtless been a fraud committed on us a palpable fraud 
the man had extracted assurances from us by false pretense that he did not know us. But then the idea on his part that anything could be gained by his doing so was in itself a compliment to us. That such a man should take so much trouble to approach us, one who could quote Horace and talk about the to Kalon, was an acknowledgment of our power. As we returned to the outer chamber, we looked round to see Mr. Malloy in his usual garments, but he was not there as yet. We waited while we smoked one of our own cigars, but he came not. He had so far gained his aim, and, as we presumed, preferred to run the risk of too long a course of hot air to risking his object by seeing us again on that afternoon. At last we left the building and are bound to confess that our mind dwelt much on Mr. Michael Malloy during the remainder of that evening. End of section 1 Recording by Arnold Banner, Thurmond, North Carolina